This episode is brought to you by Douglas. With the Douglas, you'll get an exquisite night's sleep because it's a truly comfortable mattress. Whether you sleep on your back, your side, or your stomach, it's designed to match any sleep style. I do appreciate that versatility, though though I am a pretty much a side-only sleeper. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle valued up to $650 with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protector free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Get your news in less than three minutes, three times per day with the Al Jazeera News Updates. Just ask your home device to play the news by Al Jazeera or subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Demi Lilla Aname, host of the International Cash Cows podcast, former producer of Wag the Duck, and newly minted Calgarian. Welcome to Shortcuts. <laughs> Thanks, Jono. How are you? I am glad you're here. Today on the show, from cash cows to puppy mills or from victims to scapegoats, has there been a change in how we talk about international students? And how a recent story about immigration detention brought my attention to how Canada's provincial governments have one by one told the Canada Border Services Agency that they no longer want to be complicit in a system often decried as inhumane. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to you by William Azaroff, Marcus Way, Keely White-Young, Megan Salomon, Robin Mullins, Joanne Bell, Mayan Vered, and Kelly. I'm Kelly Proudfoot calling in from the traditional territory of Kwanlun Don First Nation and Ta'an Kwachan Council in Whitehorse, Yukon. I support Canada land because in the dark, on a run or ski in minus 35, I feel connected to the rest of Canada through stories that matter to Canadians. It's tough to nail down which program brings me the most joy, but I love Canada land back. Ratfucker is the best title for a podcast. White Saviors, Backbench, and the Commons Hockey Series offered a much needed perspective on our beloved game. Ottawa has unveiled a cap on the number of international students allowed into Canada. The feds say more students have been arriving in Canada without the proper supports. It comes as the federal government faces criticism for increasing immigration numbers while the country faces a housing crisis. It is, it is not the intention of this program to have sham commerce degrees or business degrees that are sitting on top of a massage parlor uh, that someone doesn't even go to. Tens of thousands of students to come and go to fake colleges that the Liberal government now admits are, were, quote, puppy mills. Well, Mark Miller didn't say they were puppy mills exactly. He, he said, There are, in provinces, the diploma equivalent of puppy mills that are just churning out diplomas. Uh, and this is not a legitimate student experience. There is fraud and abuse, and it needs to end. Which suggests to me he wasn't previously familiar with or aware of the term diploma mills. That, that's, that's a term that's used. But I think him talking about predatory institutions as like puppy mills was the first time I've heard that metaphor used about this. But even with regard to, you know, more legitimate post-secondary institutions, the term cash cow uh, in reference to international students and how they take advantage of them has been used a lot. You know, as government subsidies for universities and colleges have shrunk, those institutions have increasingly turned to international students to make up the shortfall. You know, because while tuition is regulated for domestic students, schools can charge people from abroad pretty much whatever they want, whatever they think the market will bear, which works out to a lot more. 
And, you know, it's rare actually to find a feature story about international students in Canada that doesn't use the term cash cows, are often in the headline. Just last week, there was cash cows and cheap labor, the plight of international students in the Thai. And in news reports over just the past few days, uh, per the Winnipeg Free Press, students feel like cash cows, unfairly blamed for Manitoba's economic issues. And, you know, different advocates who spoke to CBC Calgary and CTV Ottawa bemoaned that their respective provincial governments treated international students as cash cows. I mean, Danny, your story, you did a piece for us for the Monday show for Canada Land a couple years ago called, I believe, Canada's International Cash Cows. Mm-hmm. And you now have a podcast series called International Cash Cows. You yourself were an international student. When did you first hear that term? I first heard the term, I believe, close to the end of my studies. I got caught up in the pandemic. Before the pandemic happened, when I arrived very quickly, like I said in the piece that I did for the Monday show a few years ago, when I arrived in Canada, of course, I quickly started to experience a lot of the challenges that a lot of international students and not only international students, a lot of immigrants face in the country, you know, trying to essentially make a home for yourself in a new place. I have, I still have no family here. So, of course, it was very challenging for me. So I turned to the media as a journalist, you know, I wanted to see why am I going through this? Plus, there were so many students in my class who were also international students. I, I believe we were 21 in my class and there were only five or six domestic students. A lot of the other international students going through the same challenges that I was going through. So I went to the media. I couldn't find any of the stories. So I started to do them. A lot of my assignments in school, I did them on the issues, you know, some of the challenges, also the successes that mm. international students were recording at the time. And that's kind of when, and then, you know, getting closer to the end of my studies. And, you know, of course, there were so many financial challenges that post-secondary institutions were facing during the pandemic with students not being able to come into the country, international students, I mean, not being able to come into the country, you know, because of all the Mm -hmm. lockdowns and everything and the restrictions. And even with that, they were still increasing international student fees I'm taking my courses online, doing, I mean, at the the time it was no fault of anyone, but then you're still charging me $8,000, $9,000 and you're charging domestic students, what, $1,005, $2,000 at the time? That's kind of when I started to hear about the term cash cows, cash cows. So I dug into it. If this is something the media has tracked for years, we know it's an issue. What has caused it to change recently? What has caused this shift in the narrative from international students being cash cows or victims or exploited to them coming to take our homes. I mean, with the increase in discussions about housing, I mean, we've been seeing uh, housing in general, we've been seeing a lot more headlines, a lot more, you know, rhetoric linking it to immigration, but particularly a lot more headlines linking it to immigration, including a Canadian press story from just a couple of weeks ago that originally went out over the wire with the headline, Government was warned two years ago that high immigration could affect housing costs. Or a Globe and Mail story, also from earlier this month, was a couple of weeks ago, Canada stuck in population trap needs to reduce immigration, bank economists say, uh, with this focus shifting on the Canada being unable to sort of keep up with itself needs to, maybe there are too many immigrants. <laughs> Which, as we'll talk about, is not really, you know, maybe in the top five, top ten ways to address the underlying causes of the actual major issues that we face? They are a lot of immigrants. I'm one. But they are needed. 
the immigrants are needed. And I also feel like one of the reasons why it's not being talked about more is a lot more immigrants are speaking up. And I feel like there are more people in the media who are also these immigrants who are also now talking about the stories, right? And they're not only talking about them, but they're talking about the stories from the lived person's experience, which I think is which I think is also very, very important and valuable. So I, I feel like, you know, that's why we're hearing about it a lot more than we used to. Yeah. I mean, that's a, that's actually, that is an excellent point. I mean, we're talking about all this system and series of systems and stacked systems that chances are if you're born here, probably never had to, not only never had to go through, never had to give a moment's thought to, but which do affect at least hundreds of thousands of people in Canada every single year and are such a crucial part of this government and what it, you know, what our society does and how it treats people. Hopefully now that we have, you know, now that there are more people, hopefully more people who have gone through these systems or have do have this experience who are better positioned, should say, to tell these stories in mainstream forms is being brought to the fore more. And yeah. maybe, we're, you, know, out, you know, outlets, publications are like our things like ours are better able to tackle or come around to seeing systems that the people who previously worked here may not have had firsthand experience with. Like maybe there's definitely been a lot written in the past several years in particular about, about this. The earliest reference I found to post-secondary students, international students in Canada as cash cows, was a whole bunch of things in the fall of 2003, including a syndicated Can West story that raised questions about, so McLean's Magazine does an annual university rankings. And one of the things it asked about was like, well, universities earn extra points in their rankings when they attract international students. But some argue this may reflect an institution's financial strategy rather than academic prowess. Since foreign students pay extraordinarily high tuition fees, they are often called cash cows. Yeah. I mean, in a way, it's, I mean, it's a euphemism for exploitation. Do you think it's being addressed now? No, no. I mean, maybe to an extent, it is being addressed, but also, I don't know. I felt like a cash cow when I was an international student. As soon as I realized that, you know, I was paying four or five times more than domestic students. And anyone would say, yeah, but domestic students have paid taxes, you know, their parents have paid taxes from time immemorial. From the minute I stepped into this country, I started to pay taxes, right? I've gone through a lot of the things that, you know, Canadians, the domestic students have gone through. Now I agree that, you know, maybe education is subsidized for uh, for domestic students and other people will say, oh, maybe you should have stayed in your country. But at the end of the day, I'm bringing in money into the country. I'm bringing my skills, you know, I'm helping to fill the labor shortage. They say that Canadians are now in the mortality age. I don't know how they say that, but, you know, like mm -hmm. the workforce is now, yeah. you know, mostly in the, uh, you know, mortality age. And now, you know, they, they need people to come into the country. But I've been doing everything that a lot of that most Canadians mm -hmm. do. I'm, you know, working, contributing to the economy. I bring my diverse skills and my experiences. I've been traumatized just because of, you know, just because of my immigration experience and things like that. So... I'd say I'm not sure that it is it is being, you know, addressed. Mm. If it's going to be addressed, first we have to start with making sure that, you know, the education system is prepared to actually 
provide an actual education for the people that, and not only domestic not only international students also domestic students because i i just feel like it's been tackled but it's not necessarily been tackled in the right way the cap on international study permits that was announced this week which is part of the reasons why you know it's it's also you know Jono, it's also when they make all these announcements so like then there's a boom, everyone is talking about it and then it dies again and nobody is talking about it. And then the institutions can continue to, to hike the fees. Imagine public-private partnerships where a university or a college, a public institution will partner with a private institution and shove international students in some strip mall and call that an international education. Oh, yeah. And remember that you guys did an episode on it on Wag the Dog. Yes. So we just walked around uh, in a circle in an office park in the Don Mills and Lawrence area of Midtown Toronto. And we were we were just coming to check out a uh, satellite campus, uh, which is a private college. And it is one of many many of these uh in in the gta it couldn't be more tucked away from city life it is down a long one-way street uh amid a bunch of other two-way street otherwise won't be able to get out of here you shove them in a strip mall or you shove them in some conference center give them a shoddy education and you charge them nine thousand dollars for a call for four months of that kind of studies how is that even an education? People are coming into this country, putting their lives at risk, you know, taking out huge loans to come into the country for an education. Now, again, somebody else is going to say that. But yeah, nobody asked you to take out a loan or, you know, take out a second mortgage or whatever. But at the end of the day, I give people the benefit of the doubt that not everyone is coming to take advantage of the system. Some people actually just want the good education. I wanted the education. Right. It's part of the reasons why I came here. But I mean, at the time when I came in 2019, it was presented to me as, OK, like you come to Canada. And this is how I remember the episode I did for Canada Land. You know, when you dig more into it, when I came, it was presented to me like you come here, you apply for a study permit, you get a study permit. You come here, you pay for the two years, three years, whatever, you know, for the diploma. And then we would allow you to stay. If you do everything right, we will let you stay and we will let you build a life here, right? So you cannot present that kind of opportunity. And then when people take advantage, and this is like taking advantage of it, like just taking advantage of it. And then you say, oh, no, 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 no. You don't have a right to do that. I remember a story that broke a few months ago where they realized that there were over 700 students who had come from a particular country and all of them have come on, you know, study permits. How can things like that even be happening? And now to fix that, we're putting a cap. We're putting a cap on the number of international students that can come into the country. But then what's that cap going to do? Nobody is saying anything about how, especially, I mean, this is really targeting the colleges because that's where mm -hmm. a lot of international students go. And you went to, you went to Seneca College, right? Yes. And you and you were on the Seneca campus proper, right? Not one yeah, I, yeah, 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 of course. <laughs> of course. That would have been my lead story that uh, I was showing yeah. in some strip yes. more. Um, but, you know, nobody is saying anything about where these for secondary institutions who are now going, who are now facing a huge, you know, shortage of funds, where are they going to get that money from? 
because they have to get that money from somewhere. They're not just putting that money in the bank account. They're spending that money. They're probably using it to pay for the professors. They're using it to, you know, upkeep of the institution mm. and things like that. But nobody is saying where that money is going to come from. And now we're probably going to face another tax hike because that money has to come from somewhere. That is a big part of the question is where if the governments aren't going to make up the short, like largely universities and colleges and especially colleges in large part turn toward international students and, you know, because uh, governments had not, you know, because their spending or their just inflation even like had yeah. basically outpaced. How much had outpaced, Yeah, the government subsidies or government subsidies yeah. had been cut and they've been first forced to turn to international students, international students, other ways to cash cows to milk that. Yeah. I mean. I guess there, one of the things you mentioned, I think it's one of the thing, reasons that maybe this is coming up now. And it's, you know, for, like, for example, like I think for all the, the, the year you were a producer on Wag the Dog, you, you often wanted to do an episode of International Students. Though we did talk about it a bit, I don't think we ever ended up doing an episode. And it wasn't until this past summer, I think, when we did it because this policy that Doug Ford had put in place shortly after he came into office, so in 2019, this public college-private partnerships, which yeah. you referred to, I think it's basically sort of reached a tipping point and it became this incredibly acute example. And I think it's mm-hmm. basically what these – what Mark Miller is referring to with these puppy yeah. slash diploma mills. It's the case like in every province, I believe, where, you know, colleges and universities, you can go to them. You, get a, you can get a post-study work permit afterwards and they can charge what they want. In Ontario, because of this change Doug Ford made in 2019 – Colleges were basically able to expand rapidly beyond their footprint by partnering with the private colleges, which are the sort of the strip mall colleges, which exist everywhere in Ontario. Because if, basically, if they partnered with a public college, they could basically pay the public college to get their curriculum materials, then teach those curriculum materials at their strip malls or whatever, and then the students who went through them would not only pay public college tuition, they would also get a public college diploma and therefore potentially be therefore be eligible for a post-study permit to stay here. And that was not only uncapped, it was seemingly unregulated and so essentially became a sideways route to or just, just basically an entirely uh, unregulated second immigration system that was basically existed for no purpose other than to attract people with false promises yeah. uh, to come here. And I think that's where it's sort of like it just started to explode. Yeah. And and I feel like, you know, Jono, when people talk about it, they talk about it from the angle like it's the student's fault. When I'm in my country, in Nigeria, I have no idea that, you know, the, that it's a private, public, whatever partnership. I'm applying to a school, but I have no idea. I mean, it's then like when you get here that you're, figuring out things like that. You don't have this line of sight. You don't have this visibility when you're still like in your home country. And there's only so much research that you can do. You can't figure these things out. Also, let's not forget that, you know, there are immigration consultants and, you know, all these uh, these schools, they partner with consultants and whatever that help them get students. And those people, just they tell you whatever they think you want to hear just to get you here so that they can get their percentage. I mean, one thing I think, I mean, one thing the federal government did do that I think, every, I think everyone seems to agree is like the right move was the closing this sort of loophole in, in terms of these public college private partnerships yeah. will no longer lead to a post-study work permit. I applaud that. Enough is enough with that. You can't have people paying 
exorbitant amounts for a degree that is not a degree. And another thing you touched on, don't blame the students. I certainly hope people don't, but that but that's always a concern and a tension here, right? How do we discuss real issues of infrastructure and services that are struggling to keep up with the growing population, a growth that is mostly rooted in international migration, without wandering into or let alone leaving room for any of the obvious racist tropes. To be clear, international students are a marginal factor when it comes to housing affordability. If listeners want to learn more about what's actually driving this crisis, they can check out the deep dive on the latest episode of The Backbench. This episode is brought to you by Douglas. How's your sleep been of late, Dammy? Good. Oh, cool. And if you'd like it to be even better, I would recommend to you the Douglas mattress. It's got a medium firm feel, an eco-light cooling gel foam layer, and a moisture-wicking machine-washable cover, which, uh, well, you've met Barkley, my, my dog, Dammy, and, and I, but I don't think you've met my cat, Dora, and not, not a lot of people meet Dora. Barkley makes a point of only doing certain things in the exact places that he is supposed to do them. He's a good boy. Dora, on the other hand, is more chaotic, which is why a machine-washable cover is a really good thing for me to have. Douglas is giving our listeners a free sleep bundle valued up to $650 with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protector free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That's douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by Article. Dammy, you've moved around quite a bit. How are you all set up in Calgary? Um, I'm, f- I'm fully settled. Uh, all good. But to help furnish your place even further, uh, you could take a look at Article. Article furniture is not only, you know, pretty chic, it's also built to last. We've had an Article couch in our office for a number of years now. Dami, you were mostly here during the pandemic, but I think you got to come in and see it or use it, perhaps. Is it a gray one? Yes, that that that's the one. It was really uh, good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, there's no signs of wear and tear. We recently got actually another couch as well that's actually even more comfortable. And we also have a new rug in here somewhere. I can't quite recall, but I haven't yet had an opportunity to thoroughly test the extent to which it's conducive to my um, fretful pacing. Article is offering our listeners $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. To claim, visit article.com slash CanadaLand and the discount will be automatically applied at checkout. That's article.com slash CanadaLand for $50 off your first purchase of $100 or more. Dammy, on this show, we like to duly note things. I will go first. Today, I would like to duly note the federal court's ruling on the federal government's use of the Emergencies Act. This ruling comes about two years after the federal government invoked it as sort of a as sort of last-ditch measure to clear out the so-called convoy protesters in Ottawa. And the mandatory commission following the invocation of the act had found that actually the government was just barely had had justified it. It was reasonable in the circumstances. It was an okay use of it. But separately, the um, Canadian Civil Liberties Association and the Canadian Constitution Foundation challenged the acting court, or more or less, they, they went to the court to sort of review the reasonableness to actually get a judicial opinion on it. And the judge, the ruling which came out earlier this week, determined actually the federal government wasn't in fact justified in invoking the Emergencies Act. The decision largely turned on this one particular question of threats to the security of Canada. Did the government meet that threshold and show like were there sufficient threats to the security of Canada under the accepted definition, uh, which basically meant threats of serious violence? Did, was that met in order for them to for it to be reasonable for them to bring in the act? And the judge basically found no. But I'm bringing this up because there was actually a really interesting paragraph at the start of the conclusion, which is not the sort of thing you 
you don't often find it in judicial decisions. I mean, obviously, judicial decisions, judges talk about how they arrive at their opinion. That's it. Like how they, you know, how the arguments offered by both sides inform the opinion and how they use, you know, their reasoning and precedent to arrive at it. This one actually begins, he notes sort of what he actually thought and what his opinions were going into the case and how those changed and shifted. And yeah, that's not something you see very often. What he wrote was, at the outset of these proceedings, while I had not reached a decision on any of the four applications, I was leaning to the view that the decision to invoke the Emergencies Act was reasonable. I considered the events that occurred in Ottawa and other locations in January and February 2022 went beyond legitimate protest and reflected an unacceptable breakdown of our public order. I had and continue to have considerable sympathy for those in government who were confronted with the situation. Had I been at their tables at the time, I may have agreed that it was necessary to invoke the act. And then he basically says, well, he has the advantage of 2020 hindsight now and more extensive record of the facts, and that's why he reached a different decision. But that, yeah, at the time he thought actually it was reasonable. And if he had been in the government's position, he probably also or he may have also agreed it was reasonable. And it's only now looking in hindsight that he doesn't think it was. And I thought that was really a really interesting bit of honesty or transparency that you don't often see in judicial decisions. Duly noted. Demi, what would you like to duly note today? In keeping with the theme of talking about immigration on this episode, I want to duly note an overlooked immigration story that I think merits a lot more discussion, and it's about the increasing trend of reverse immigration hmm. in Canada. Now, probably due to the surge in the cost of living and, you know, finding jobs, you know, the, the it's, it's really just really unaffordable to be in Canada now. And that is causing something that has been tagged reverse immigration. And what that means is people who come into the country as temporary residents, they become permanent residents. They are leaving the country in droves. In the first half of 2023, around 42,000 individuals left Canada. And that has, you know, there's been a significant number of departures in 2022 and 2021. There were a lot of newcomers who also left. When I was thinking, when I was preparing this, uh, yesterday I was thinking about it. The day I flew to, when I moved to Alberta, I went to Edmonton for a few weeks. The day I flew out of Ottawa, I met a lady at the airport and we just got to talking and she was telling me how, of course, she was a newcomer. She had come here as a PR. She, she had stayed here for two years. She had a young son. And she said the last two years of her life, she doesn't even know what she's done, you know, that she has tried everything, you know, to find a stable job and just be, you know, try to be comfortable and, you know, just make a life. She had made her immigration reason for her child because she didn't really want her child to grow up in her home country because it wasn't really safe and they have moved here. And just for the last two years, she had not been able to find a stable job. And she was saying, you know, she was comfortable in her home country. They were doing fine. It is expensive to become a citizen, especially think about like if you do the study permit route, you have paid what, $30,000, $40,000. That's if you go to a college, you're paying upwards of that if you go to a university, right? And then you have to do an English proficiency test. Even though I'm Nigerian, English is my first language. English is always speaking Nigeria. English is all I have spoken. I had to do an English. I had done a two-year diploma. I was taught in English all my life. I had to do 
an English proficiency test, which cost me $400. <laughs> the price has probably gone up. I didn't need a lawyer to help me yeah, apply for anything. But it's I did. Quite a pro- yeah. So the thought that people will go through all of this and then decide, eh, fuck it, and just go back. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, because, Jonathan, think about it. Like, if you can't find a place to live, yeah. you can't find a job, right? You go back home. Because, I mean, at the end of the day, it wasn't, it wasn't 10 years of nothing. Because, I mean, you have the permanent residency and no one can ever take that away from you except, you know, maybe you commit a, maybe, like, you kill someone. I'm, I'm pretty sure... There are ways where you can, yeah, there some ways some, that yeah. you can lose your permanent residency. But you have that. Yeah. And you're just like, you know what? I'm sorry. Like, I can't do this anymore. I'm going back home. So that's one of the reasons why our permanent residents are no longer becoming citizens. And also, just like we we're saying, the 10 years following your arrival are very crucial. You know, th- so they say that while fewer permanent residents are naturalizing overall, 92% of naturalizations mm-hmm. take place within the first 10 years. Now, in other words, if a permanent resident chooses not to become a Canadian citizen within that first 10 years, they, you know, they're just like, you know what, I'm going to stick with my permanent residency and that's it. And yeah, I I think we it's very important for mm. Canadians and even newcomers to know this um, because, you know, it will just give us that visibility into what the process is like. And also maybe it will stop this conversation of, Newcomers are the ones taking all the jobs. Mm. Newcomers are the ones causing the housing shortage. Newcomers are the reasons why the healthcare is in complete shambles. Newcomers don't want to become Canadian citizens. (laughs) Yeah, that's a very useful perspective check. Thank you. Duly noted. So we were talking about these systems that are such a huge part of Canada, but that which if you were born here, you probably never had to encounter and may have never had to think about. And another one... That's sort of come up and then I mean, it's up in the news all the time, but to my regret, it's not one I've actually paid a whole lot of attention to is immigration detention and specifically immigration detention in provincial jails. A story published on uh, Pivo, which is was sort of was independent thing, but it was spun off from it was the French previously the French language version of Ricochet, you know, put a spotlight back on this issue and looking at Quebec in particular, roughly the headline translates as detention of migrants, a system deemed discriminatory and arbitrary, telling the stories of two men who went through this system and what basically, you know, how horrible it is, and with a particular focus on how racist it is. So uh, immigration detention generally is this sort of, and theoretically it's a non-jail, non-criminal holding that is potentially indefinite. It's for people who Canada Border Service Agency has some issue with or they, for whatever reason, doubt that the person is who they say they are or that they will show up to be deported or that they can't get – for whatever reason, the Canada Border Service Agency is not satisfied that the person is is here properly or that there's something amiss. Usually it's if they believe that there is a risk that this person will sort of escape their clutches and escape their grasp or not check in for a meeting or what have you. They will toss them in an immigration detention center, which is a – Jail-like facility, there's one in Toronto in the Rexdale neighborhood. There's one in Laval, Quebec. There's one in Surrey, B.C. And they can be held there potentially indefinitely until the government or until Border Services Agency, which is a law enforcement agency that actually weirdly has like less oversight than any other law enforcement agency in Canada, which is impressive, until they and to the Immigration Refugee Board are satisfied the person can be released. Now, something – not surprisingly, this process has uh, – some, you know, racial biases <laughs> built into it in terms of, 
border agents deciding, you know, who is more or less trustworthy, who is more or less likely to show up for a meeting, to abscond, to be representing themselves accurately. And while they don't track the race of detainees, they do track their countries of origin. And at least in terms of the information that's been released, it's sort of broken down by region or continent, is that what Pivot found was that prisoners from sub-Saharan Africa were the least likely to be released in just 24 hours or less. Only 20% were released in a day or less, compared to 64% of migrants arriving from North North America and 33% of migrants from Europe. So they only... so. The majority of people, if you're coming from North America, got out in a day. Uh, A third of people from Europe did, and only one-fifth of people who had come from an African country, and sub-Saharan Africa in particular, were able to got out that quickly. They also found that detainees from North Africa were the most frequently incarcerated for long periods. After 39 days, approximately 28% of them were still incarcerated, compared to only 4% for North Americans and 11% of Europeans. They were following up on a report from joint report from Human Rights Watch and Amnesty International that came out in 2021. And that sort of got me looking at and realizing like, oh, there's actually been sort of like with the international student situation, there is, I wouldn't even say a reason for hope, but there's like a little thread to grasp onto of how things have become marginally less bad. Because one of the most egregious things that was called out by Amnesty and Human Rights Watch and other advocates was that in provinces that don't have these immigration detention centers, and even in provinces that do, they are all migrant. these people are in kept detention are often stuck in provincial jails, which are provincial jails. They're even worse. They are, they are in fact, jails. There's some of them are maximum security facilities. They are, you know, people there are, by definition, criminals or have been deemed criminals. And, you know, the experience of being there is inherently explicitly punitive as opposed to, you know, immigration detention centers, which I guess is more Im- implicitly punitive. It's a like, you know, even on the scale of these things, it's a much, much worse thing. And it seemed like it's something that didn't need to happen. And so it was kind of remarkable um, going through news stories that I just totally escaped my attention because it was not something I ever really paid attention to, which I guess is a redundant sentence. But uh, I escaped my attention realizing the extent to which over the course of just a couple of years, there actually has been a cascade where one province at a time has basically said, you know, screw you to the border service agency. We're not going to house these people anymore. We're being told, you know, Amnesty Human Rights Watch advocates are saying this is inhumane. And you know what? We agree. There's no reason these people should be in provincial jails. It started with BC giving notice to the border service agency in July 2022, followed by Nova Scotia in September, Manitoba in October, Quebec and Alberta in December, then New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Ontario all over the course of the spring of last year. Most cases, it would be effective like a year later. So starting last summer, uh, Nova Scotia's agreement ended. Alberta and Saskatchewan and BC in October. Manitoba will no longer house people in immigration detention in their jails starting this month. And then New Brunswick next month, Ontario and Quebec this June. I just thought it was super interesting that you don't often see unanimity from the provinces like this. Newfoundland and PEI haven't broken their whatever extent of arrangements they have, but... There's as of the most recent data available, there was one person um, detained in PEI. I think in and itself, it is problematic that migrants, immigrants, whatever you want to call them, from the global south spend more time at these jails than immigrants, migrants from the global north. Like in and itself, that is very problematic. And 
Yeah. It really, one thing I'll say is the reason, Mm -hmm. what I think might be the reason is because they are not blue-eyed, white Christian kids. Yeah. I mean, that was, I mean, the thing is like, clearly the reason, I mean, I mean, it's very evident the reason is racism, but I was curious, like, what is the official explanation from the Canada Border Services Agency? How do they explain this discrepancy? And actually, weirdly, the PIVO article, though I'm admittedly reading English translation, that doesn't seem to get into that. It doesn't seem to ask them. And as far as I can tell, neither did the Amnesty or Human Rights Watch report. It's possible someone else has picked up on it or followed up later. But I'm curious, like, how do, how would they explain that? <laughs> you know, it's it. This is not unique to Canada. No, there. I mean, a lot of countries in the West do this. Mm-hmm. This is by this has absolutely nothing to do with this. Like this had never really crossed my attention until 2022, when uh, Novak Djokovic, which is a tennis player, is the best tennis player ever, in my opinion. But Novak, he hadn't gotten vaccinated. Mm. And he he had gotten all the exemptions that were required. Mm-hmm. Apparently, he had had COVID in December of 2021. So he was going to Australia to play in the Australian Open. And of course, like Australia had one of the strictest uh, restrictions. And at the time, they were not allowing travelers into the country who were not vaccinated. Anyway, but... He got the exemption, did everything that he was supposed to do, traveled to Australia. But because Novak, I mean, at the time, there were, before Novak arrived Australia, there were other people who had not gotten vaccinated that were already in the country and playing in the tournament. But Novak is really big in the tennis world. Anyone that knows tennis knows about Novak Djokovic. And the government of Australia at the time had singled him out because, I mean, he has a huge platform and they were going to use him to make a statement. And he's white, but like Eastern European? He's Serbian, yeah. So they were going to use him to make a statement and say, hey, this is the scapegoat, whatever. And this elite athlete was put in an immigration jail, like a detention center. And, you know... A lot of the people in the tennis world were saying, apart from the fact that, oh, you know, whatever your thoughts and your opinion are about getting vaccinated or whatever, it was also like, you put him in a jail. What did he do wrong? Like, why? why?" And that's when I, I, like, started getting familiar with, oh, they don't just, and I started thinking, wait, like, they they put these people in jails? Like, Really? I mean, thankfully, it looks like there will be fewer and fewer uh, people in literal jails in Canada, uh, though still probably a step or two down from where Djokovic was being held, which was like a a Melbourne hotel that had been converted into a detention center. But the detention centers in Canada are very much jail-like, like effectively jails for people who haven't been charged with a crime. Thankfully, the things will be less and less in literal jails, but they're jail- yeah, basically jail-like, ineffectively in jail. People who have not been charged with a crime, people exactly. who have, and in fact, have less rights than a prisoner in a jail would have. Like, yeah. it's, it's, it's less oversight. It's kind of remarkable. And the CBSA, the Canada Border Services Agency, another thing I just came to appreciate from just reading into this, like, I guess I'm, you know, mostly like institution that if... For most people who are who live here or are born here, chances are the only time you encounter them is when you're returning to Canada from abroad. Yeah. You go through customs. You tell them what tinned fish you have, etc. <laughs> I didn't realize that in addition to fulfilling that function, which is akin to like the United States Customs and Border Protection, yeah. they are also Canada's equivalent of ICE, of the Immigration yeah. and Customs Enforcement yeah. in the U.S. And mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, shit. So they're like 
Oh, and I feel like that makes make a lot more sense. Mm-hmm. What struck me also from the story is, so Ontario, Saskatchewan, like all these provinces have pulled out of this agreement with the CBSA. Agreement to house them in provincial jails. So Yeah, so what's going to happen to them now? Well, that's the question. Uh, I mean, I do what advocates would like is all these alternatives to Mm -hmm. actually just holding them. And there are many of those. I mean, it could involve basically effectively posting bail or bond, which many do. They could just, you know, have people check in. It could be trackers like there, which is, you know, all these things are not, you know, trackers are not great. This sort of surveillance of migrants, not a cool thing. But there are alternatives, most of which are in use already for the majority of people, only a small portion, are actually kept in these detention centers. So it should be more moving to that. In practice, of course, it'll just mean that, you know, it seems to – I can't remember which article I read, but I mean, I was thinking in the conversation, they're just going to build more capacity. It still is a step up from housing them in jails. Yeah. But it's not much of a step up. Like, as an example, I just – you know, looking at the Toronto one in, on Street View, which it's in Rexdale, the actual neighborhood, just – Going around, you can see they're like, oh, they have a playground in the a children's playground in the yard. You wouldn't see that in a so jail. You're going but to put children also in a detention center. It does, it, and that's the other thing. Like, oh, that's what made me realize, like, oh shit, they have clearly have, and this is something that has been reported, and that play structure has been reported on, as it turns out. Although, uh, you going, you can go in. Fun thing with street views, you can go back in time and see all the previous captures. And so you can see when they replaced the play structure, they upgraded it a few years ago. And they also took down the uh, barbed wire, uh, the razor wire around it, because that mm-hmm. was not making nice media pictures. But yeah, clearly they have uh, enough children there on a frequent enough basis that it is worth it for them to have a playground. Wow. I don't know. It's just like the international student thing. Like we're just going around in circles, but mm-hmm. we're not really fixing anything because I, they're not, I, I don't know what the alternative is to housing immigration detainees, or I don't know what they are called. And mm. it's, we're not also fixing the major issue that you're putting more people of color. Mm-hmm. You're detaining more people of color and keeping them for longer than they keep mm-hmm. white people, essentially. Yeah. Big problem. That's Shortcuts for this week. Thanks so much for joining me, Dami. Thanks for having me, Jono. Listeners can email me at jonathan at canadaland.com or find me on Blue Sky at Goldsby at something or other. Uh, I will try to read everything you send. Where can people find you, Dami? You can find me on LinkedIn, Damilola Unime, O-N-I-M-E is the last name. And they can also listen to your International Cash Cows podcast. Thank you for plugging that in. Yeah, you can listen to the International Cash Cows podcast. Uh, We're working on season two, but you can listen to all of the five episodes of season one, wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is Karen Pugliese. And theme music is by SoCalled. Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, please support us. We rely on listeners like you paying for journalism. As a supporter, you'll get premium access to all of our shows ad-free, including early releases and bonus content. You'll also get our exclusive newsletter, discounts on Candleland merch, invites and tickets to our live and virtual events, and more than anything, you'll be a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis, and you'll be keeping our work free and accessible to everybody. Come join us now, click the link in your show notes, or go to candleland.com join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you.